All right. Welcome to episode number 12. Uh, this is the PhD podcast with uh, my co-host, Jason Abdijan. We are excited to have um, on, on today's podcast, Sean Cochran. Uh, he's all the way from New Mexico State University. He's a second year PhD student uh, in, uh, well, I'll let him explain himself. Thanks for being us. Thanks for uh, being here with us, uh, Sean. Appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining us today. We chatted a little bit off air and, uh, you know, Sean's got a unique background. He's going from coast to coast essentially, but we appreciate you having me on, Sean. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. Like I said, I've binge listened to all the, the podcast episodes, so I'm excited to be here and talk about what I'm interested in. So Sean, yeah, can you, Sean, uh, if you wouldn't mind. Oh yeah. Go ahead. RJ. Yeah. yeah so Sean, can, if you don't mind, uh, can you talk, talk to us a little bit about your background and, and where you're from and a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, so I am originally from the small city of Reedsville, North Carolina, which is about 45 minutes north of Greensboro. Um, so I went to University of North Carolina, Greensboro for my undergraduate degree, uh, which I got in sports medicine. And during my time there, I volunteered as an undergrad research assistant in the virtual environment for assessment and rehabilitation lab or VIR lab. And um, for people that know me, I'm a gaming nerd, so any chance I get to mess around with virtual reality, I'll take it. Um, and so while I was there, I found this interesting theory of attentional focus, and uh, I got very interested in that motor learning area. And so um, they let me stay on for my master's degree. Uh, so I also got my master's from UNCG, and my thesis was specifically looking at the effects of attentional focus in VR and the transfer effects from VR to the real world. Um, and then from there, uh, I was offered a position at, for a PhD at New Mexico State with Dr. Aiken. Um, our interests in attentional focus lined up as well, so it felt like a natural fit. Um, and then while I was there, um, I started to explore different areas that I might also be interested in besides attentional focus, and that's where um, I found the bilateral transfer of motor skill area um, that I sent you the paper on uh, yeah. for this episode. Yeah, yeah no, that's I, very that's cool. That's cool, Sean. Actually, funny story. So I did my master's at Ball State, and actually, uh, one of my friends in the architecture program was doing virtual reality stuff and building like a go. like a city through VR. And I, I remember going into his thesis project and seeing this like virtual environment that I created like wow this is this is incredible that's that's really neat if you don't mind me asking like what sort of stuff were you doing in terms of like the transfer uh to like real world stuff yeah so um hard you may may know the the papers we kind of used to build our methodology but we uh looked at um transfer again from real world to vr and then from vr back to real world and we did um uh a jump study of attentional focus kind of following Jared Porter and Will Wu's work. Um, so we had them perform a jump task in the real world and then we had them receive training, um, in virtual and they were either oh, given external focus of attention instruction or control. And then, um, once they received that training, we collected retention, um, in VR, but then a transfer back into the real world to see if there were, there were any effects. Did you find anything with that, with your thesis work? So we did find um, external focus showed a benefit uh, to jump performance mm -hmm. in virtual. Um, the interesting finding that we had was there was no transfer from VR back to the real world. 
Um, and I, I think honestly that had a lot to do with the fidelity of our environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of literature around VR that the more realistic and the more specific you can make it to where they're going to perform it in the real world, the better. And we couldn't recreate every little detail of our, of our lab space, yeah. but, um, it, it still was very interesting to find that external focus, even through the medium of virtual reality still showed a benefit towards human performance. Um, even yeah. though we didn't see a transfer to the real world. Yeah. Virtual reality is, uh, virtual reality yeah. is, uh, it's really, it's really interesting. I know there's a couple of startups now that are, that are working with VR to like, um, combat chronic pain, for example, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So it's pretty, I mean, I, I'm not an expert in it, but I know for sure that there's uh, really cool applications uh, of VR to uh, real world examples. And, and even as a therapeutic tool, I think uh, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, and it's, it's, and yeah, a lot I mean, of it is very much readily available too. I mean, yeah. not, not to go like too expensive either, but um, it's, uh, it's good stuff for sure. Yeah. The equipment yeah. Is, is a lot cheaper to get and um, it's, yeah. it's, you have plenty of possibilities when it comes to environment creation. So. Yeah. So That's you, uh, you sent us a really, uh, I, I really enjoyed this article a lot. Um, it was the title of it was the effects of brain lateralization on motor control and adaptation. Um, and we'll put this also in the show notes as well for, for everyone to check out. But, um, Sean, why'd you, why'd you choose this article and how does it sort of pertain to your uh, research interests? Yeah. So, um, while I was in my first year, um, at New Mexico state, uh, I took a skill acquisition class and, um, even back throughout my master's, I th- always thought it was interesting that we examined retention and transfer to assess learning and motor learning and specifically the transfer piece. And, uh, so during this skill acquisition class, um, we talked about bilateral transfer of skill, the idea that we practice, um, getting used to an, or adapting our movements with one arm, but we see learned effects in the other arm from that practice performance in the arm that hasn't received any practice at all. And for me, that was interesting and kind of, um, I guess shattered my understanding of what, you know, limb dominance and control was, uh, because I always thought it to be black and white, you know, your right hand, um, is controlled by the contralateral hemisphere and your left hand is controlled by the other hemisphere. And it was, you know, you know, separated that way, but examining the research and what we see is there is a lot of, um, interplay between the hemispheres and transferring information from one limb to the other. Um, and so it gets at this idea that even though we are, we have one limb that is our dominant limb, it's this idea of dynamic dominance that there is actually information for motor output that we take from what the other limb has, um, been exposed to or learned. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because sometimes like you'll see in these very like dominant limb type of sports, right? Like baseball pitching and golfing, like they're like, if you watch them with their non-dominant hand, mm-hmm. I think it was you Darvish or something like that. A couple of years ago, they were showing him throw with his, I think it was his left hand because he's a right-handed pitcher. But like the way he throws a ball with his left hand, it's like, it's better than 95% of just people in general throwing with yeah. their dominant hand. And sometimes you'll see golfers, take swings with their opposite sides. Like, holy crap, these guys could be a professional golfer on that or switch handed, switch handed, uh, switching batters, stuff like that too. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That you mentioned that. That's interesting. That's cool stuff. 
Yeah. Um, so, Sean, can you, uh, I know you hit on it a little bit, can you give our listeners a brief overview of what the model of motor lateralization is in the context of adaptation? I feel like we throw around the word adaptation a lot. Um, and yeah. So, yeah, if you can, if you can start by defining adaptation and then uh, just kind of take it from there. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So motor adaptation, um, it's the idea that we uh, are able to predict or account for um, perturbations or errors in our environment that our environment may induce on our motor output. Um, so for, and trying to account for those and reduce them so we can still perform our goal directed movements. Um, so for example, uh, the paper actually gives a good example of walking on a boat deck, right? Um, if you've ever walked on a boat deck, you can't walk a straight line and it, you know, the sway not affect your movement, but, um, our bodies have a way of predicting what that environment may cause on our movement. And we use that prediction to also account for what we actually receive as feedback and compare it. So it's kind of a feed forward model. And we update that process as we move throughout that, through that environment and account for um, all those perturbations. And so um, a lot of transfer studies um, in order to examine this phenomenon more in like a, a lab setting, they use uh, visual prisms, uh, kind of like, well, not necessarily beer goggles, but they mess with the, the visual, <laughs> the visual feedback. Right. Um, and so you take a, you take a motor task that someone's been able to do since they were very young, like for example, just drawing a straight line with a pencil. And then all of a sudden you make that a novel task and then they have to adapt to that visual feedback that they're getting and be able to predict and control and account for that visual rotation. For their movements and, and actually, so the, Sean, you kind of got oh you kind of got into our next kind of talking point and something that i wanted to mention to you specifically and get your thoughts on was you know some of the stuff that i do with concussion and you know musculoskeletal injury the big thing in concussion is is visual and there's sometimes you know athletes complain of you know light sensitivity and stuff like that but i know you're kind of going down this but specifically what is the role of like visual feedback in terms of this motor lateralization yeah. So, um, um, again, um, with motor lateralization, certain, um, uh, hemispheres are responsible for certain, uh, movement parameters. Right. And so what we see through the research is that the hemisphere that controls the dominant arm, um, has more of control over per prediction of errors in our movements. And so with visual feedback that we get, first we predict what the environment may cause to our motor output. And again, we use that visual feedback that we actually get and compare it, and then we update it. That drives the updating process um, so that our motor commands coincide with the actual feedback that we get. And mm -hmm. so we can update our, you know, our prediction of what the movement should be for the next time that we encounter that environment. That's good stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. Everyone always, you know, it's always the visual, the visual input, you know, like that's 70, what, 70% 70 of our sensory input is visual. And yeah. as soon as you take away or you alter it with, you know, the prism goggles or some of those like strobe type of goggles. Now what we're seeing with like concussion research, you see these motor patterns just completely break down, right? Like yeah. things just completely fall apart. You see someone balancing on a leg. So that's interesting. I had yeah. another question kind of for you, Sean, is this is something that for me personally, something that I've noticed in my life is that uh -huh. this whole role of like task 
specificity and how that plays a role in like limb dominance. And the example that I give all the time is that for me personally, I'm right hand dominant in like my fine motor task. Like I write with a pencil, eat with a fork. My right hand is my go-to side. But then I was a hockey and lacrosse player growing up, played a lot of golf too, and you know, throwing a baseball and stuff. All my gross, larger motor movements are on my left side. And that's where I feel more comfortable. If you could just touch into some of that and how that plays a role in this whole idea of lateralization. Yeah, I, I think that speaks to um, we need a little bit more research on the individuals that identify as left-hand dominant for um, certain motor tasks that they perform. Um, if you look at the, the body of literature right now, 90%, or I'm just guessing, but around 90% are mostly right-hand dominant individuals. And that's just yeah, because, yeah. I mean, most of the population is right-handed. They're the easiest to, you know, to, right. for, for, to have for data collection. Right. Um, but I think for people that, you know, can do some tasks right-handed and some tasks left-handed, um, I, I don't want to speculate too deep into that, but I think it's, it's people that, could prefer left-hand dominance, but they're living in a right-handed world. Um, you know, like mm, people, okay. like most things are, are crafted for right-handed people because right. that's most of the population, right? Like scissors yeah. are made for right-handed people. I mean, I play guitar and most guitars are made for right-handed people. It's very rare you find a left-handed guitar. And even if so, it's, it's expensive to, to get. Um, so I think, I think some of that has to do with that. Um, but then again, I don't want to speculate too deep into the weeds about that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's it's so interesting that you mentioned that because like, if I ever go play like a round of golf with somebody, like the joke will be you're hitting from the wrong side. Yeah. <laughs> or like, a, like a, or like a baseball pitcher too. Like if you have a really good baseball pitcher can throw 95, a hundred, like they're in, like that's such yeah. a rarity in sports and just in general life. Like you mentioned the whole scissors are built for right-handed people like desks too. Most desks yeah. are for right-handed people. So I never had a problem with that. But then I'll see like the odd, the odd kid with the one kid in every classroom who's left-handed. Like, okay, where's his desk yeah. going to be? You go into these, you go into these big lecture halls, and there's one left-handed desk out of two hundred yeah. seats, right? <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. That, it's really interesting, though. It's really interesting because I've always been curious about that. Because like, my fine stuff is right-handed, but then everything else that I do, I feel so much comfortable on my left side. Even like, even when I'm like performing exercises like squats and deadlifts, like I know. I've tried to work on this a little bit, but I know just my left side is my stronger side. It's what I feel more comfortable yeah. with. But every time you get to the fine stuff, it's the right side. That's interesting stuff. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it, yeah, go ahead. No, no sorry. Go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it could be that some of those movements, I mean, you prefer left-handed. And as you get older, more of those tasks that you learn, that's your preference. But those initial tasks mm-hmm. that you learn, such as writing and holding a fork, you know, people might have been um, shoving it to your right hand because most people are, you know, right-handed. So, yeah, that's true. The environment, the, environment it, shapes it. Behavior. Of, uh, I think I've read a couple of studies before that you know they'll they'll ask what their dominant limb is and they'll do mm-hmm. it they'll do it by asking them what like they kick the ball with. Yep. You know, that, yep. that might that might fluctuate, right? I might kick a yep. ball to my right, but do something on the left. And then also, like uh, I think I read one the other day where they. Uh, they did it, and they basically saw what hand they used to sign the consent form, and that's what that oh, was. Oh, like. yeah, yeah. And I was, you know, it's still very different, right? I can still sign, I can sign something with my right hand, but it kind of reminds yeah. me of like so, basketball in high school, where I, I was a, I was, I'm a righty, but 
but I also shot lefty. It was kind of weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So uh, Sean, I know, I know I didn't, I didn't have this question on there for you. So I'm going to kind of put you a little bit on the spot right now, okay. but it's something that <laughs> just talking about it is if I'm trying to define limb dominance in a study, and this is a big thing, especially in like the biomechanics thing and some of the stuff that strength and conditioning and all that kind of stuff. What would you, what would you, I guess you recommend is like best practice? Like if I'm doing like a jump landing task and I have like a football player, how, how would you suggest that someone like myself goes about trying to ter- determine what their dominant limb is? Yeah. Um, so, uh, it's funny, Harji mentioned that question. I actually used that for my thesis to define, right. uh, limb dominance when they, when they right. actually jumped in the virtual environment. So it's funny you mentioned that. Um, there are, I did actual, too. I did too. Oh, really? Kicking <laughs> yeah, the there, ball, there, kicking a soccer ball. Yeah. Yeah. There are, there are multiple ways to do it. Um, I've even heard of, um, uh, a hand in, handedness survey. They, they answer all these mm-hmm. questions, and at the end, yep. it reports: Are they more left-handed or right-handed? Um, I did a attentional focus uh, shooting study, and in order to determine which um, eye was their dominant, so which side to use, we had them just hold their thumb towards a marker on the wall, like a light switch, and then they had to close one eye and then close the other, and determine which you know eye was their dominance. They're a dominant eye, and then we had them use the pistol on that side. Um, So there are multiple ways to get at it um, to determine dominance. I guess there's not purely just one way. (laughs) Yeah, there's really really not. And I think, honestly, it's a good thing and a bad thing, right? Because I think you can be a little flexible in terms of your task. But at the same time, at least, you know, some of the stuff I do with, like, ACL, it's like, okay, what's the dominant limb? What's the non-dominant limb? Okay, which limb now is more at risk? So I think it, it makes it kind of confusing for sports medicine people, or just researchers in general, when you're trying to determine what, what the heck is the dominant limb in the first place so that yeah. you can you know train appropriately and stuff like that. And, and I think that's, 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 all, that's also an interesting question because you know, with, with limb dominance, if you're you know, asking someone um, uh, you know, what leg do you kick a soccer ball with, well, does that make the other leg kind of irrelevant to look at? I mean, based on the, you know, this bio, this motor lateralization, uh, we know that certain limbs are, um, like for example, the non-dominant limb is better at being more accurate and more robust to pertur- perturbations mm. when it comes to motor output. Whereas, you know, your dominant limb is, you know, better at more efficient efficiency of the movement, but not, you know, endpoint accuracy or, response to perturbation so you could be in order in examining one limb taking out the importance of the other when it comes to determining yeah. that dominance there's some motor outputs that you're just negating by choosing one or the right. other i just keep thinking that's good about, stuff like, that you mentioned that i just keep yeah. thinking about like my my own studies and i'm like well that's where i messed <laughs> up <laughs> no well like i for my for my vr study i used non-dominant limb because i was just trying yeah. to make it novel but now I'm, I'm thinking about it was that the was that the best, that choice? best <laughs> limb choice yeah, yeah. <laughs> now that i've looked into this literature a little bit so yeah no it's really no, it's interesting you mentioned. um so i think you hit on it a little bit actually um so what would, what do you think would be the optimal sort of way to introduce like a new or sort of relearn a motor skill um that predominantly utilize arm movements, so say like grasping or something. Um, yeah. Any thoughts? Uh, 
I think that that points to an emphasis again on the practice structure and the environment we kind of set up for um, that performer that's either learning or relearning a task. Um, I think it also depends on which limb we're trying to train. Um, for example, um, a lot of these movement parameters are seen to transfer from the dominant to the non-dominant direction, but not as heavy, vice versa. And so if you, you know, had the, had the choice, um, it's, and you had to choose the other limb, it's better to pick their dominant limb to practice this new thing to, or you know, this new adaptation, and then see what happens to the left limb. And I think it, that has importance for um, special populations that may, you know, mm-hmm. not have full movement capabilities of one or the other. Um, so I think that's, it's a very important um, thing to look at. Yeah, I'm, I can just start thinking about, because typically, like, if you look at, like, transfer tasks in motor learning literature, though, um, very rarely do we switch the limbs, we'll switch the distance, or we'll switch the task, yeah. you know, like, right. um, we won't, I mean, I think there's been a couple where they'll switch the limbs, but um, I just think maybe more of that should be really interesting, too, to see, you know, if practicing on one limb transfers to my other limb, if so, is that more yeah. accurate versus not more accurate? You know, stuff like yeah. that. Um, that's really interesting. So, interesting actually. Yeah. so Sean, what, uh, I know we talked about it off air, but what current or future studies are, well, because of COVID, I'm sure there's nothing currently going on, but you know, if there are, yeah. I'd love to hear about what's current or, or future in your lab and and, and, and what's, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, going back to uh, what we were able to actually finish uh, before um, COVID came around, um, we were doing an attentional focus study. Um, one of the other PhD students in our lab who we share the same advisor, Dr. Aiken, um, she actually threw um, discus in college. And so she has um, connections with that that community of of. of um, athletes. And we actually um, got to interview elite Olympic level performers about attentional focus. Um, and so we were able to, to collect for that because um, that was in, in February. Um, and right now we're in the data analysis part of that. So a lot of transcribing interviews and coding. And if you've had any qualitative experience, you know about how fun that is. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're very excited to, to get that finished and see what the results were from that. And then, uh, like I said, we're a motor learning lab, but we have a sport um, psychology side. Uh, so we looked at imagery um, as an intervention for strength training. Um, so we, we have finished um, collecting on that. And then for me specifically, my research interest now with the, the idea of bilateral transfer, um, we had started putting together a virtual environment to uh, examine bilateral transfer effects, kind of like that visual prism that we we had talked about earlier, but using VR in order to rotate that person's visual um, field, you know, by 30, 45 degrees or ramp up their movement patterns or their, their force in the movement. Um, so we had, we had created the environment. We're going to start collecting and literally that Friday, the, uh, university <laughs> shut down for COVID. So kind of in a holding pattern. Um, we've been cleared so far to conduct research, um, but we just started back this week as well. Um, so hopefully we don't follow in the directions of some of the other universities, but 
if that happens, we got to be prepared to adapt. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. That's what it's all been about for PhD students. I mean, I'm just a, I'm a big proponent of just being proactive at this point. Like, you know, things are going to happen. And you just, you can't just sit back and just wait till the last that you just got to keep going and keep pushing. Sean, keep I know we talked a little bit of, exactly. I know we talked a little bit about this off air, but in terms of you're going into your second year, so you haven't fully hit dissertation more like Harjeev and I are in going into our final years, but yeah. Uh, specifically, what do you want to go in, in? You know, what's the route you want to take for the dissertation? Is it going to be the the VR type of stuff? And yeah, so I, I still want to examine this whole um, this transfer idea with virtual reality, and uh, and again the the bilateral aspect of it, the bimanual transfer of skill uh, fascinates me. So again, um, that's where I want to go with my dissertation, um, and uh, we wanted to see what the results were of our VR study. To then build off, you know, next mm-hmm. steps from there. Um, so we're kind of waiting for that one to kick back in, um, but we'll we'll see where that goes and then carry on from there. That's exciting. You and you and a, you and a, <laughs> a previous guest that we had on Tom Gretton um, would get along really well because he's done a lot of like pre-performance routines and, and uh, imagery type of work. Oh, really? That's interesting. We've had, a, we've had a couple guests now on who have done similar. He's a sports psychologist, comes from a sports psych background. Okay. That'd be cool. Yeah, you guys, uh, we'll get you guys in touch and stuff. Yeah, I think you guys have, a, I'd appreciate have, have a good point, conversation. Right? Yeah. Right. That's the whole point of this. <laughs> that's the whole Podcast point. is successful. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. Hey, Sean, so we asked this question to every guest we have and uh, as a way to kind of wrap it up. Um, what's a... Uh, what's one practical takeaway that any practitioner can take from your expertise? Now I know you have a lot of hats, but um, yeah, <laughs> the self-imposed lot of hats. Like <laughs> one, like one thing that someone can take away and, and you know, just yeah, I, I think it, it, it points to practice structure is, is very important. Um, going back to uh, attentional focus and, you know, my experience in that, you know, instructions, have meaning words have meaning i think mac pearson said the same thing on her her podcast interview you you see how important um instructions are just for performance and i think that uh with practice structure we need to pay attention to what that performer that athlete that patient may need and then construct it from there building off of do they need certain environments to induce certain um transfer and etc I, sw- I swear, awesome. ever since I met Arjeev a couple of years ago, that's all I hear about is practice environments and constraints and optimal yeah. conditions. And I can't, it seems like I can't get rid of you guys anymore. It's just the, <laughs> you, cut, you cut one head off and two more grow in its place now. For yeah. you, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I make, I make a joke, but it's just, uh, it's great though. Now, cause I come from a, you know, a biomechanics engineering background. I never got exposed to this as an undergrad master's student. So the more that I, you know, learn from you guys in terms of, you know, motor learning, motor control. I think it just makes, you know, my research stronger because I have a better understanding of how individuals learn tasks. Sean, really appreciate you, you know, taking the time today. You know, everything's ramping up. We're getting busier now. If people wanted to reach out to you um, and learn more, you know, about stuff you're doing and, you know, get some takeaways from you, what are some good ways to find you, whether it's social media, email, et cetera? Yeah. So uh, my, my Twitter handle is Sean S E A N U N C 50. And then I've, I've forwarded my email, um, along to you guys. Um, it's kind of hard because it's my first name, first initial, middle initial, last name, but some letters are cut off. So I won't try to explain all that. 
<laughs> we'll, right now, we'll link it yeah, on the show notes. Look out for my email. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. Thanks again, Sean. Really appreciate taking your time. You know, stay safe. Best of luck on, yeah. you know, revamping, getting research back up and running. And, you know, we'll stay in touch because I'm interested. We you know we just had a, a fun conversation about limb dominance. I'll probably have some more questions for yeah. you down the road as you get further into yeah. your degree. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you thanks. to you guys as well. This has been awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Care, appreciate man. it. Yeah. Yep.